Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Let's Hash It Out podcast. I'm your host, Forrest, also known as Hishoshi on YouTube. On this podcast, we're all about next generation tech with a special focus on blockchain and cryptocurrency. You'll get the latest news, concise education, fun interviews, and product reviews all in one fun audio experience. So let's hash it out. So today, guys, I wanted to bring in a special guest to bring your questions into the spotlight. Take those questions. I'll answer them. We'll have a good time. And after this video, please do submit more questions in the comments down below. So let's dive into the questions you guys asked on Twitter, over email, etc. This is my girlfriend, Alex. She's going to be reading the questions and asking them to me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Alex. Alex, these are the kind people of YouTube. Hi, Hash Nation. Nice to meet you all. Um, I am here to be Forrest's interviewer today. So, um, let's go to Twitter. So someone asked, if you could rename the word Bitcoin to anything of your choice, what would you pick? It's a good question. It sounds cliche, but I would probably name it sound money. Money that is not inflationary, money that can't be controlled by one single organization and printed into oblivion. That would be what I would call it. Okay, fair. Second, can Bitcoin scale to thousands of TPS without changing the proof of work mechanism? Cool. So for... What, what is TPS? Transactions per second. So okay. the big topic that everyone likes to talk about in blockchain, especially in platforms like Bitcoin, is, you know, can it scale? And scaling means how many transactions per second can it handle? Because okay. Visa... You know, they claim that in their transaction network, they can handle in the tens of thousands yeah, per, like, second. per second yeah. all over the world. Right. And so people often use that as a way to take down Bitcoin and criticize Bitcoin as, right. as a payment method. Um, and so to answer that question, and what was the name of the person who asked that question? Philip. Philip. Yeah. Philip John Santiano. Thank you for the question. Cool name. Yeah. Very cool name. I think that the answer is it depends. I think that with proof of work, you're not going to speed up the process of mining transactions much more than we already have uh, without modifications. So there might be modifications to proof of work in the future. Uh, there are little things like segregated witness, like we saw in the Bitcoin network that help uh, make the transactions smaller in size. So you can fit more in each block, which then ups the overall transaction per second count. Um, but the answer probably is no without a proof of work modification, it's not going to scale that base level. However, layer two solutions that sit on top of the blockchain, like Lightning Network, for example, are a great way to add transactions per second to the mix, even if they're not on that main blockchain with proof of work. So that would be my answer. That was a really good answer, and that completely went over my head. For all the people who have no clue what the hell proof of work is, can you explain that? Yeah, so me? for anyone who doesn't know what proof of work is, it's the consensus mechanism that is used on the Bitcoin blockchain amongst others. And what proof of work is, it's, okay. it's basically a mechanism by which miners, those special nodes on the network, yeah. go and prove that they've done the work to add a block to the blockchain. Gotcha. It's a very random process in the sense that Miners are computing these random values iteratively. They're kind of stepping through these cryptographic puzzles or math puzzles to find an answer within a certain uh, certain range that's defined by the protocol. Okay. And another question. This one's for me. Um, do you have to have like a specific computer to like 
be a node so, or can you like can can you use your computer here like can i use like can you use an iphone um using an iphone is tough because it takes up a fair bit of space to collect the entire blockchain network so one of the prerequisites to having a node and i prerequisites the wrong word one of the things that comes with running a full node is that you become a keeper of a full copy of the entire blockchain ledger right so How? as How a node it, it downloads all of that and to be quite honest with you it's not as crazy massive as people think you know it's still in the gigabytes we're not in terabytes of data yet okay so it's reasonable but by that same standard you probably don't want to have that running on your phone and eating up that juice because what's happening is as a full node you're connecting to other peers on the network because it's a peer-to-peer -peer network okay. and so you're sharing your copy of the ledger and your state basically what you see the network as with people that are your nearest neighbors, so other nodes. Okay. And so it's a very active process for your computer. You don't have to do anything, but if you run that software on your computer and you connect to the other Bitcoin core nodes on the network, other peers, you're running a node. Okay, another stupid question. I'm sure all of Hash Nation gets this for, for the people who don't. And it's going to sound really stupid. Do you go on like a website to like code? Like, do I type in like, I know this is gonna be really stupid, like blockchain.com? Like, is it an app? Is it a software? Like, how do you start coding? Like I come in here and there's like a bunch of lines of code. I'm like, right. So how'd you get that? Coding, coding is one thing, running a node is another. Running a node <laughs> is all about having the same software as the other nodes on the network, the other peers. Okay. So a blockchain is really formed when a bunch of different people in geographically separate locations with different computers all run the same software okay. that establish a protocol of how transactions are going to be created, how blocks are mined. They have all these rules set up and they all agree on that certain consensus. Sort of. Early on, you agree on like what the protocol is. You all run the same software. Okay. So then you become peers to each other in the same network. You know, the difference between a blockchain and a traditional server architecture like you have with Facebook is that when you talk to Facebook, every request that you make for content yeah. goes from your phone, which is the client, mm -hmm. over to their server, which is the server. They take your request, they serve you the content, and it passes it back to your phone. Okay. In a peer-to-peer -peer environment like a blockchain, your computer then becomes a server and a client. You're consuming information from other people right. and you're providing information to other to people. Other people. So that's what a peer-to-peer -peer network is. So when you want to run that software, or when you want to be a part of a blockchain, you run the same software as other people, so you can become a peer in an agreed-upon protocol, and that's how that works. And then coding-wise, really a lot of what's happening is you're creating, um, you're creating software that can then interact with that protocol. So there are established sort of methods that you can use to interact with these different blockchain networks and those are called APIs, application programming interfaces. Okay. So it's sort of like an interface that you can build your own application with a user interface to then talk to the blockchain, right? So whenever people are coding, usually that's what's happening. Oh, okay. Cool. Dig it. For smart people, but still dig it. All right. Crypto Terp. Right on. Uh, I just want to buy and store slash spend crypto quickly, easily, and safely. How and with what? Cool. So there are a bunch of different options. Um, I think my favorite option right now to spend crypto, there are actually two of them. Uh, one of them is Blue Wallet. You can use that with the Lightning Network. Basically, that creates a little payment channel that you can send 
amounts of Bitcoin to buy things. And there are stores okay. now that are starting to integrate oh, with like you Lightning can use Network. It? Right. And oh, so you can you okay. know, buy a coffee with that. And it's fast enough because it's a, sort of a layer above the Bitcoin blockchain, but then feeds into that as a transaction later. Okay. Um, so it's sort of like you're setting aside transactions, you're making a bunch of transactions, and you're feeding that final balance to the blockchain instead of all the transactions that you made. Um, and so Lightning Network is great for those small, quick payments where you don't want to wait for a block to get mined in Bitcoin. Um, so that's one way, and that's the really true using Bitcoin or using crypto as a payment method directly. Uh, and so a lot of people like that. But I also think that one of the most powerful solutions out there right now is the Crypto.com, formerly Monaco, uh, Visa debit card. So you, what you can do is, is you can download their app, you can get their card. There's a bunch of different options. I'm going to make a separate video completely about this, but high level, you get this card and it allows you to use your cryptocurrency all in that wallet, fund your card with whatever your fiat currency is locally, and then purchase things normally. So just today, I paid to get my, my state inspection for my car with Bitcoin because I didn't have any other method of payment with me. I didn't have any other cards. I didn't have any cash with me. So it was one of those things where I had Bitcoin, I always have Bitcoin on my phone so I could go ahead and pay with that card. So I really do like that, even though you're not sending a vendor or a person who's giving you a service Bitcoin directly, you can still pay with your crypto and it's still moving crypto in general. So I still feel that that's really valuable. Cool. Great question. That is a good question. Another question I have, you're speaking of transactions and visa like you know how when we go to like the grocery store or whatever or i go to like forever 21 and like they have to pay like a certain percent of that to visa or amex whatever mm -hmm. do you if companies were to accept bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency do they have to pay like coinbase or something I, it depends if you have there are services that you can get out there today where you can pay them to sort of be a custodian. They take care of the software. They take care of the keys. They integrate it with your term, your payment terminals. They do everything for you. Right. In that case, yeah, you're going to pay a fee because they're a service, right? What about like, what's the cost? Like something like that versus Visa. Is it comparable? Like, is that why a lot of companies haven't adopted? I can't go to my corner store and use Bitcoin. Like, well, is it too expensive for them? I to don't do think it? the issue is expensiveness. I think the issue is that it's a volatile asset. So when mm. you receive Bitcoin for right. a cup of coffee, you've established what your costs are. Right. There's a significant chance that you're going to make <laughs> yeah. more money than what you just got. Right. But unless you convert it out to your fiat currency of the day, right. you know, you're, you're not going to be able to lock in yeah. profits or lock in and understand where your losses are coming yeah. from. Well, it's like that guy who, what did it, bought a pizza? He bought a pizza that's with a worth Bitcoin, millions, right? And, that's sort of, and same yes. with like 50 cent, like 50 cents already like a G and a millionaire or whatever. But that dude had like five Bitcoin, he sold it all, he's like, damn, so. Yeah, no, and I think I that that's that. the reason why people don't, haven't adopted it, in addition to the fact that it's still not very well understood. Yeah. So businesses, there that. are still businesses today that don't accept credit because they don't want to pay the fees, they don't understand why you need that they're a cash business because they like cash and you get like a discount like they'll right. give me like i'll go to like the bakery around the corner for us and they'll give me like a four percent cash back because i right. maybe they pay like five percent because for small businesses yeah. for small businesses like my barber for example they don't accept credit because it costs them too much to accept it right, right? so that's cool. one of the solutions hopefully uh that crypto brings is we can give more equitably costed solutions for payment processing totally don't get this one 
Bitboy. Wen Moon. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so this question comes Don't up all the time, means. and that's basically Wait, that's an actual thing? when is Bitcoin going to the moon, right? When is it, oh. when are we gonna get those crazy prices? And the answer is, I have no idea. No one can ever predict that. Tomorrow. I would hope so. If it's if it's tomorrow, I'll be more than stoked about it. But the reality is, no one knows. No one can ever guess where the prices are going and when. It's like predicting stocks. It's like how are you? And it's even harder than predicting stocks because it's a smaller market. Yeah. And there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't even know about. When do you think? Okay, let me think about this. When do you think we're gonna reach Bitcoin being a hundred grand? Just a random estimate, like that you could be like completely off. Yeah, no, I'm pumped because I've at least rubbed off on you in that way. You think that's happening? Well, whatever. I, you keep no one, on saying like, and I, mean, I and I'm not I really, technical. I don't know. I think for, I think about it from this the scarcity perspective. Is that you know we're coming up on the next the next having. We just had one for Litecoin. Boom. She watches my videos, but we are moving towards that having in 2020 where that block reward is going to get cut in half again. So the creation of bitcoins is going to slow down again by 50 percent so that's in the inflation of the overall supply of bitcoin year over year is going to decrease again and that's going to happen several times until the supply constraint is reaches its finality right the final bitcoin is mined when when is the do we have a date when this happening i mean you have it's it's years and years and years away there is a date and i can't place it in my head what about the like the halving that you said is happening in 2020 what's the date for that the halving it's approximately mid 2020 i think it's may 2020 but don't quote me on that but is there like an at like is there like a who decided this so this is all set forth in the protocol at the very beginning do you like read it you know like the terms of service that you always skip through is that is is it like a manual the code is the terms of service for bitcoin so basically, it, there is a very well-defined piece of code that says every 210,000 blocks that are mined, which equates to a certain number of years. It really depends on how fast blocks get mined. But Damn. every 210,000 blocks in Bitcoin, a halving occurs. Oh, okay. Right? In Litecoin, it's every 840,000 blocks. So you kind of, you have this set forth in the protocol, and the whole reason for that is understanding that Mining is a core principle and a core way that the network is secured. Yeah. And you don't have banks that you're paying a fee to to, to do, do work, for right? You, yeah. To validate transactions yeah. and to prove that things are correct, right? Correct. And so miners have to be paid. And miners also have to stick around because the more total miners there are contributing computing power, the more secure the network is. So how do you incentivize them to stay? Mm. You have to keep that Bitcoin price moving in a relatively steady trajectory over right. time. Because if it's going to go down, who's going to do right. it? Right. If it goes down, much. they'll want to, like, they have the stockpile of Bitcoin that they've collected. Yeah. They will want to get rid of that and they'll right, want to right, stop right. mining. Yeah. So you want to keep them mining and that's why halvings were set up to sort of force the, the hand of investors and speculators that, hey, there's more scarcity. It should be priced higher, right? This dude, Satoshi, right? Dude, girl, group, alien, no one knows who or what. She's smart. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, Okay, next. Why should I give up my billions of hard-earned money to invest in thin air? Honestly, that's a fair question. That's, like, not a hater thing. Like, for someone like me who's not technical, I get it. Right. I think it's it's the same question that you pose when people use U.S. dollars or other reserve currencies of the world, right? Yeah. 
90% of these fiat currencies that we use every day and that we live our lives on are backed by nothing, right? They're backed by nothing. But is it? like They're backed I mean, by nothing tangible. Yeah, but like, for example, like, I know my grandfather always says, like, American money, like, you go anywhere, people accept American money, like, yeah, it's, it's back, backed, backed by, like... It's backed by the power of a nation, it's backed yeah. by fear, and I get that. Yeah. But the reality is, is that there's also no control to the supply of that money. Yeah, no, right? I agree with that. I mean, they can just inflate We're it passengers. They want. We're yeah, passengers yeah. in that. And yeah. to me, it has nothing to do in any way, shape, or form with, like, this, you know anarchist stuff it's really all about the fact that the money systems that we have don't work for people they don't work for what we do and it's been a platform on which companies and governments to an extent around the world have been able to manipulate people and other countries and profiteer off of people's you know really unalienable right Mm -hmm. to use money to trade to work with each other and to send money to other places. I mean, we're in this place in time where we have such amazing technology, but it costs way too much. Like, I can't send money to family in Yeah. No, I did. I will say one thing. Forrest was explaining to me about blockchain or whatever, because when I used, I used to live in uh, Canada, I moved here, met this guy. Hence the Molson Canadian. People always ask if I'm Canadian where I live in Canada. I don't live in Canada. I'm from I'm Washington, D.C. From the sick side, though. But she's That's from right. Toronto. Got that sign in Toronto. Fun uh, place. Yeah. So anyways, when I was here going to school, my parents would send me money for rent or whatever it would be. It would cost them hundreds of dollars to send me money. And not only that, it would take like five to seven days. So I would have to give them like two weeks notice for them to send me money, for them to have to go to the bank pay them and then it would literally all the time get delayed and I was saying like what can be done and, you know Forrest is talking about the fact that blockchain has kind of enabled that to not be as a slow of a process more transparent process but also not cost or at least not cost to the right. extent. Right and, so. and that's the goal is it, it, it's supposed to not cost as much right yeah. there's always got to be a fee because someone's got to do someone's got to do right? the work yeah. You know people have advertised blockchain solutions especially bitcoin as like this fee-less free open completely without any caveat system and that's not the case you always have to pay a fee because that's the way economics work right? Yeah true okay next I'm gonna pronounce this wrong so i'm sorry digilight 2020 is he running for president maybe cool should i put my money into yut utxo blockchain yeah. projects or not what is that gotcha okay so i realize i also didn't fully answer the last question why would you invest in thin air the reality <laughs> is is that yeah th- cryptocurrencies sure. by and large are not all valuable cryptocurrencies ab- amongst the thousands that there are only a few a select handful have like really sound economics bitcoin is one there's true scarcity there's a true community behind it it's secured by the people who believe in it and i believe that that's why it has value it's a scarce asset with a solid demand and i only believe that that demand is going to go up along with the scarcity as well and increasing over time that's a recipe for value not financial advice just telling you my opinion 100k bro hopefully um, yes, don't say that on camera. I'm really? just teasing you. I'm just teasing you. Oh my God. You. No, guess... people get really particular about, you know, this isn't financial no, advice. I, no one guys, wants to get in trouble. don't take my advice. I, I have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> don't seriously. Imagine like some person like, oh, it's dead to a bad. 
Uh, yeah, so there are people UT... that are far less qualified telling people to invest in stuff. Yeah, don't, don't worry. do that stuff, guys. UTXO, I don't know what that is, but you can tell me. Yeah, UTXO is a non-spent transaction output blockchain. That is the same structure as what Bitcoin uses. <laughs> so instead, you know when you have a bank account, So it's right? not a crypto? It is a cryptocurrency. Unspent transaction output is the method by which the accounting on the Bitcoin blockchain is done, right? That, I'm sorry, that's like super confusing. Well, I'm going to explain it to you. <laughs> so when you have an account with a bank, right? Yeah. You have a statement period, and throughout that statement period, you have debits and credits, right? Yeah. You can always access what happened in the past, but you're carrying this, you have this sort of balance that you're working from and they're keeping track of all future balances based on the previous one from your last statement, right? Yeah. That's an account-based system. Okay. In a, a UTXO or an unspent transaction output model, your balance is calculated rather by the overall sort of summation of all of the unspent transactions that you have in your in your account, right? Okay. So when you're going to spend Bitcoin, yeah. you don't pull from a number balance. It's like 2.5 Bitcoins and then you can send 0.2. Instead, ah. if you've received one Bitcoin from someone, you received 0.25 Bitcoin from someone and then one Bitcoin from someone else. Mm -hmm. That's three unspent transaction outputs in your account. Right. Your total balance is 2.25 but it's composed of three outputs. Instead of having one balance, it's calculated based on all those. Okay. So then if I wanted to send you yeah. 0 0.75, mm -hmm. what would happen is I would create a transaction on the blockchain. This is for Bitcoin, for example. And I'd send, say basically, I want to send 0.75 Bitcoins out of that one Bitcoin unspent transaction output I have. Okay. Send 0.75 to Alexandra. And then also I need to give myself change. So I'm going to say, and then I want 0.25 back. Okay. So then the outputs of that transaction are 0.75 Bitcoins to you, which yeah. is now your unspent transaction output. And then I have a new unspent transaction output of 0.25 in my wallet. So it's basically a way that you can keep track of balance without having to keep sort of this repository of everyone's balances, okay. right? There and it, it's just easier and it's a lightweight solution to like deal with that methodology. Okay. Right? Got it. Cool. Thank you, DigiLite. Learn something. For someone new to the space, clearly explain the differences and divergence between first, second, and third generation cryptos and blockchain solutions, OG, BTC, Bitcoin, POW spinoffs, proof of work, proof of work smart contracts, proof, proof of, of work. Stake. Okay, yeah. so. Well. Yeah, that's a big question. How does this so, dude say he's new to the space? Like, you know so much. He might not be. He's asking, like, if someone comes oh, in and they're not like sure. Okay. So there are different generations of blockchain solutions. And obviously, this has been sort of created by marketing teams within blockchain projects in general saying, hey, we're the next generation. You know, everyone says that. Yeah. The reality is, is that the first sort of generation of a blockchain is the Bitcoin model, where it's a payments network. It's a... Uh, truth network you're keeping track of the state of a thing and that is your bitcoin balance right okay then there's ethereum that kind of came in and became this like next generation quote-unquote platform where they introduced the core concepts of, of bitcoin with an account-based model and then they added this extra layer which was smart contracts which are basically just virtual machine run pieces of code that feed information to the blockchain the key is is that that piece of code 
has to be run by every single node on the entire network, which is today like nearly 40,000 or a little more than 40,000 computers. When you create a smart contract, all those computers have to run it. So it's like a big shared computer. That was the idea of a generation two blockchain. Payments and a shared computing environment. Now these sort of gen three, these new blockchain environments that are sometimes calling themselves generation two, but I'm trying to keep this organized in at least my mind. You know, you have these other platforms that have taken the lessons learned from what Ethereum has done and have said, well, we're going to improve on consensus. We're going to introduce um, sharded computing. We're going to introduce all sorts of random things that they think will make the blockchain more efficient, faster transactions, more security, more privacy, etc. That would be generation three. So I think you always just want to carve back the marketing when you have someone saying, oh, we're like the next big thing we can get a hundred thousand transactions per second right now not true if someone had solved the problem of reaching network consensus at scale with a hundred thousand transactions per second with complete anonymity and total security we wouldn't even be having this conversation because they would already be taking the world by storm visa would already be half gone by now and there aren't projects that are out there that have achieved that Theoretical limits are one thing, real delivered solutions are another. So when you're going through, it's not one generation is better than the other. They all just have different approaches. So that's my answer. What is sharding? So sharding is... That's, I'm sorry, that's a really crappy name. No, I know. People always laugh like, about that. Like, what? Who chose that? Is but that from like Satoshi? Shard, Did, like so, a shard. No, I get yeah. you. Did Satoshi come up with that? No, it's Who completely did? separate. I mean, sharding has been around for forever. Oh, like... It's like a, a computing concept. Oh, okay. um, But basically, it means that you break up the computational power, like power of the network. Okay. You break up all the load into little pieces. So if you have a... Shards of glass. Right. It's like shards of a network. Okay. So if you have 100,000 transactions per second feeding through one pipe, right? Yeah. It's going to get a little bit clogged. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of get doing that. that, you can split it up into multiple pipes. And then you can reconcile it all at the end. So that's basically what sharding is. Is it's creating a much easier path for larger volumes. Cool. Splitting up the load. Isn't he a good teacher, guys? Because I think he is. Next. Why is, I love this, because this is like easy, good. Why is decentralization so important to the evolution of our society? Well phrased, well phrased. I think it's, it's a natural evolution of what we've been doing for the last close to 100 years, I think, yeah. as technology has gotten better and more prevalent in our lives. I also am of the mind, though, that the goal of complete decentralization is a pipe dream. And it's not a pipe dream in that I am of the mind that people don't think that that's a great idea, but I think it's utopia. Because ultimately when things go wrong, where do people look? Yeah, you need a central, they some look, sort of authority. People look to authority. And yeah. whether that's a true like a true authority or whether that's people right, right, that right. you trust in your community, I mean, that's a different story, but... Complete decentralization where everyone has an equal say and everyone pretty much does whatever they want, it's been proven to just not work in theory. And even when you try and implement that, people sort of form their own structures where there's mm -hmm. a hierarchy no matter what anyway. People will not 
actually stay fully decentralized. Hashtag being human. Right. Fighting for So power. the point is, is that decentralization is important, though, when it comes to business, when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. Because the control of like key facets of society, like how much money gets printed and how we behave in a global economy as a society should not be decided by a few people. It should be decided by everyone. Praise be. That's scary. (laughs) But, uh, but anyway, the, the reality is, is that when decentralization becomes more prevalent in society, which we've seen with the internet, information is now way more decentralized. That's, that was the first sort of, uh, frontier of decentralization you used to have to go to a library yeah go to a book or go to a newspaper that was laced with complete opinion from a few people who are lucky enough to get published that's one source of information basically you have the radio you have news whatever those things were around but the internet came along and now you have access to so many more opinions you have access to information from other countries that you may not even be able to get where you live because there's censorship, yeah, right? So to the point where the internet changed the game for information, blockchain is going to change the game in terms of decentralizing money and decentralizing business processes. Agreed. So this is a good question, and I know I've asked you this before. What happens when all the Bitcoins are mined, besides everyone trying to attack each other and get Bitcoin? What happens? Yeah, so I think this is a challenging one for a lot of people, and the answer is we don't truly know what will happen but it is my belief that there are a couple of things that are in bitcoin's favor when it comes to the time when everything is mined and then there's no more mining rewards that's the concern how do we keep miners involved keeping the network secure when there are no mining rewards anymore right people aren't gonna do it that's the way that people feel but i I actually think that the havings and all of the scarcity that's built into the the protocol yeah i think it was carefully calibrated to make it so that transaction fees alone mm-hmm. when you go in that even those fractions of a bitcoin will be worth enough that miners could potentially sustain themselves on that alone yeah i guess it right? really depends on where we end up. but i also think that the grand play here is that satoshi whomever or wherever that person or group is they're already aliens <laughs> the decision was let these this decentralized community, like community, figure it out, right? How maybe it's a matter of over time when we start to get to that scarcity level, it's a pledge from the community that is the Bitcoin community that we're going to set aside a certain amount of Bitcoin to pay miners to secure the network. Or Interesting. everyone is going to start to participate more actively in the Bitcoin network. So mining is going to be more of a truly widely decentralized um, process because now big mining companies kind of dominate the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But though the one last thing, and this is more of it's not even a conspiracy because it's not negative, but I think <laughs> that it's possible that the Satoshi wallet, right, that has right now millions, if not close to, no, I think it's millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin in there. It might even be more. But I feel like it's possible that Satoshi. Flew the coop is not around, but until that time, right? And if it's a human being, then Satoshi is probably not going to be alive necessarily when the uh, final Bitcoin is mined. But ultimately, I think that it's possible that that wallet with all that Bitcoin was set aside for the time when 
no more Bitcoins created and it's this nest egg for which we can pay So this person like, just thought of everything? Right, but if, you know, from my perspective, you think ahead that far, you know what this protocol is yeah, capable yeah, yeah. of. You would set aside something for when that day comes. I guess so. So that's my belief. I think that that Satoshi wallet is set aside for when mining finally is no longer rewarded. And I agree. Next. Cool. How, oh, this is a good one. I like, I totally did that. Digi Light running for president again. How can parents get their kids into coding and programming? Really good question. I think, I mean, I'm just gonna take this one for a second. Um, I know in a lot of schools in Toronto, they had after four programs. So like once school is done, like uh, they would encourage, you know, students to sign up. Uh, a lot of the times it was free too. Um, and their parents like would, you know, come pick them up later in the evening and um, you'd have um, people teach students coding techniques. I, I did one or two of those classes, wasn't very good, wasn't my strong suit, more, inter more interested in soccer, but um, they really encourage that. I think it's pretty great. I know there's also a bunch of like uh, women's coding groups in Toronto that encouraged uh, girls in elementary, middle, and high school to participate in coding, which I think is really, really important. Um, and more needs to be done in that space. But what else? What do you think? No, I, yeah, I'd agree with all that. I, I think too that parents need to encourage their kids early on that they can do it. Yeah. Because I think it's like a second language, and it truly is. It because is. when you go in, you learn to code per se. It's like learning to speak another language. You're learning to understand how computers think right and so a lot of people i would say 90 percent of people sit down and look at it and don't understand it at all at first it's all gibberish but the reality is, is as you sit down and you have someone that really speaks your language right then they can help demystify that process for you and yeah. help you understand why things are done yeah. but i mean no matter how many years that i actually code i always find problems every day that i don't know how to solve and yeah. so it's finding a love and passion for solving problems all the time. Yeah. No, I think it's cool. It'd be a frustrating <clears throat> process, but I think also the key is kind of like you said, like languages, it's always easier to learn a language when you're younger. Yeah, start them young. Yeah, like start them like as, I mean, don't like force any kids to do anything. Yeah. Not encouraging that, but I'm just saying, I, I think it was great. Like people are always encouraging me to do that if that was something I was interested in. I just happened not to be and I wasn't yeah. very good at it. But having the option and knowing that's a thing, I think is, is kind of like happening. There are just so it. many resources out there now. Yeah, yeah. The no. internet's full of it. Yeah. All right. So, don't, cannot pronounce your name. Sorry. What happens if China shut down mining? How long will it take for mining difficulty? Uh, does the chain freeze then? Okay, so if... China moved to ban mining. Why would they do that? I know they like censor a lot of stuff, but like, but I have a question. Seriously, what's the advantage of them doing that? Like, what, what do they get out of that? Control. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin oh. is semi a threat to the status quo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like uncontrollable, quote unquote, money for for China. They like to be able to have tight grip on what's going on. Yeah. I think most governments do. Yeah. But yeah, if China. Clamped down on mining and banned it all together. I think it wouldn't be this thing where it was mining was legal the day before and then the next day the lights all go off and mining is illegal. It would take time and so I think miners would then find another place to go. Mm. Um, I also think that 
the network is insulated from that a little bit because there are mining groups elsewhere. China has a big proportion, but there, you know, there are people out there that mine. And I also think it would be an interesting concept to see if China was out of the game, uh, where the network goes in terms of where the next mining um, capability comes from. Like um, what country you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a question. Why is because I, I I mean I've seen it like on like news and stuff like these huge warehouses in China. And that's where they do it. Like, why, why is China super into it? Like, why isn't it Canada? Why isn't it Australia? Why isn't it... Why, is it just because land is a lot cheaper there? Like, are people more into the technology there? Are they more invested in it than we are? Like, what is it that they're, they're the ones doing the mining, well, typically? Well, it started out, and I, and I, you know, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but at least I was speaking to, you know, some minor folks at Consensus over the last, like, three or four years, yeah. that conference in New York, and they said the reason is, is because if you have these certain licenses and you have certain land... In China, you get a really nice benefit that you get either like low to no cost electricity. Oh, so one of the main costs of mining are sort of out of the game, right? So now you have to deal with the hardware and rent and whatever mm. and licensing, but you don't have to deal with electricity. Whereas in most countries, yeah. you're paying a fortune a and it yeah. kills your profitability. There so you I feel sense. that that's the reason why. Yeah. Um, also, China is a pretty technical country yeah. in general. So I feel that that's also part of it. Um, but chain freezes can occur. So if if it played out like people are saying in this question, where it's like one day Bitcoin mining is illegal, all of it shuts down at once, you have like a 50% drop in total hash rate or computing power on the network. Mm -hmm. The chain very well could and probably would freeze because why the difficulty of mining, right? Yeah. That difficulty, the math puzzle yeah, yeah, yeah. adjusts automatically, but on a cadence of X number of blocks. So it takes a little while for the protocol to adjust to that rapid decrease in total hash rate. Gotcha. So it's like using your Game Boy to try and solve a huge vector graphing puzzle on your, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. You could use a graphing calculator and it would take relatively little time. But if you try to use a Game Boy processor from like the 90s, it wouldn't work as well. So it's the same sort of thing. Okay. So yeah, chain freeze could occur. I just don't think it's going to happen that way. Okay, cool. Alex, great name. Uh, is it possible for Bitcoin's protocol to be changed to allow a larger supply than the current 21 million? That I've asked you before too. Because can't this man, woman, child come out of the woods and be like, yo. No. More Bitcoin. No control. Because no, but can't, can't it's a, they? It's a protocol. So here's, here's the thing. One of the things that comes out for people when they get into the space the first time, they're like, all right, first of all, why are there three different types of Bitcoin, right? So you have Bitcoin yeah. Core, right? Which is the Bitcoin, uh, Then right? there's like Bitcoin Cash. There's Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, I was like, and what? And Bitcoin Satoshi's Vision, Have right? Not All, those are hard forks of the blockchain. Because when you download an app on the App Store, right? You get an update. Eventually, you have no choice but to update, right? You can't just be like, nope, not updating, not doing it. Eventually, they'll cut you off because they have a server and they don't want you running it's like old code. like my iPhone. Like, if right. I don't update, like, all of a sudden my mom calls me, it's like I can't answer. Right, so. they'll cut you off. They'll yeah. stop you because you have a central service with a central server that's going to tell you, hey, your version's not right. We're not talking to you, right? You're not getting information until you yeah. update. So with blockchain, though, with there is no central authority to say, hey, update or die. Or update or you're not getting the, you know, you're not getting mm -hmm. XYZ. So if a protocol change happens, and that could be changing the mining process, changing the difficulty. Can't we all, can, like, 
is it can't there all be consensus that if people wanted there to be 30 million Bitcoin? Yes, that's my point. Yeah, so we, what, does every single computer have to agree? No. Like, do you literally click, yes, I consent? Like, no, but, but what happens is like Bitcoin Cash came out of a disagreement about consensus and block size and basic stuff about Bitcoin, right? And that created a fork where oh. some people used the new protocol, which gotcha. became Bitcoin Cash. And then other people said, no, this is the one that I like. Okay. And they stayed with Bitcoin Core, which is the original one. Yeah. Right. Okay. And there's all this debate over cryptographically, which is the original chain. Well, the one. The None one. of that matters. It's about the protocol. What protocol is original to hmm. the core scarcity values, the core values of how many Bitcoins okay. there are, the block size, whatever. There are arguments for and against larger blocks to make it faster, right? There are arguments for and against introducing, you know, cryptographic changes to mining. All sorts of things you could do. But because it's a blockchain, people are free to not agree and fork the chain. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can. So some people could say... We believe that Bitcoin should have a supply of 210 million instead of 21. So they can just like go off and be like, yo, Coinbase. But enough people have to get on board. Miners have to get on board. Can I ask you a question? How many people would have to agree? It's arbitrary. Well, I mean, I could theoretically, if I got like five friends to go and make a Bitcoin fork, change change the protocol and try and get other people to join join in. We would technically have a fork of Bitcoin. It's just not as simple or easy as that to get it to get it done. Right? You have to have some support. So the protocol change would have to get some support. I'd support you. I would never touch it. (laughs) The reality is though is that yes, it's feasible. Yes, it's possible to change the supply, but no one person can do it, and it's very unlikely that the people who believe in Bitcoin will ever budge on that. Ever, ever, never, ever. Stand your ground, peeps. Stand yeah. your ground. Next. This is actually this is the last one. Is the crypto assets class in blockchain an elaborate government scheme to usher in a classless economy to control the masses with AI dolls? <laughs> I think we're gonna no. wanna okay, answer so, that. Uh, I mean yeah. comic relief, the reality is His name is Woodgrain. Woodgrain. Dope question. The answer is unlikely. The reality is is that whoever created it, if it was an attempt to control people, it was a pretty stupid one because Bitcoin is one of those things and crypto is one of those things that's very difficult to control. Uh, It's the same reason why crypto companies have not been attacked as directly by government bodies as Facebook has been when they pitched their own cryptocurrency because there wasn't a whole lot of decentralization happening in the Facebook one. So there's one place where the government can go to attack it. Whereas if you know the government tries to go after an open source community of developers, they can shut the developers down. But ultimately, the protocol is going to continue as long as other people are running that software. So it's really difficult to tear that network down. Okay. Um, so... I don't know why the government, a government, no matter where they are, would decide we're going to create a protocol that's peer-to-peer, open source, and free for everyone in order to control you because you can't really control it. So, Cool. I think those are all the questions. Those are really good questions. I think I uh, also asked some pretty good questions for 
like non-technical people. Right on. So guys, definitely throw any questions that we didn't get to today in the comments down below. You can tweet me uh, or you can leave me a message on my email, wherever you want to send questions to. We'll factor that in for maybe this second round for this. I think these are, these are pretty fun. Let's do it. Uh, and please do not forget to subscribe on YouTube if you're watching it there to go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast if you're on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, wherever you are listening. Thank you guys very much for all of the time and I wish you all the best. Cheers. Let's hash it out.